we just go up the mountain and into a place where it's not made into concrete pathways or a cableway, but it's there, you know, we got such an access to wilderness here and, and that's not nature, wilderness is a different category of it. Wild, the wild part yeah, of nature, yeah. not so touched by Not human. tamed and not categorized, but, but you know, where things go wild and um, it might even be a bit dangerous because there might be an animal that, that could kill us. And to just go into that space and, and to feel lost in that space and to feel a little bit of fear in that place, you know, when you are there at night and, and you have your little campfire and you hear some sound from behind and you don't know what it is, you know, to go back into that state that was the same state for hundreds of thousands of years for our ancestors, you know. Hello and welcome to the NixiePod podcast. I'm your host, Nicole René, a quantum coach and filmmaker sharing authentic spiritual adventures. We deep dive into life's mysteries and magic with amazing people that have followed their calling and have a wealth of knowledge to share. Each episode is an invitation to spark and nurture your soul. Bernd Beerbaum is an anthropologist, an author, a world traveler. He's taken groups of people around the world. He's a painter. He takes amazing photographs. Have I missed anything out, Bernd? Good enough. <laughs> I mean, there's so much. I love how you put everything together in what you do, and it all flows so beautifully. Um, so I checked in with my guides before our interview, and I was asking them, what is the, what is the crux for the people that listen to, to this podcast? about you and what you can mm. give to to the world and to to our listeners and the message that came back was that as, as an anthropologist bringing the old into the new you light a fire in those fellow humans around you to really bring all those spiritual and maybe animistic philosophies back into our modern life and be able to use them and reading a little bit about you, I see that that is part of your passion and maybe why we connect so well as well. So to start with, tell me a little bit about what brought you into um, all the things that you do. What, where, where did the passion start to follow anthropology and then into all these beautiful arts that, that have followed that? Yeah, looking back, it's, it's, um, it's not really a miracle or something. It, it uh, starts out when I was 16 and I really didn't know what to do with myself. And, and somehow I just got the impulse from family, from friends, maybe from the time that, that I was living, um, that travel would be good. You know, just go out there, hitchhike. I grew up in Germany. It was easy to hitchhike everywhere in Europe. So I started doing that at age 16, 17. I, I went to America for an exchange year. So I did my senior year at an American high school. And uh, we had quite an, um, a contact there with the local indigenous groups uh, living in the Pacific Northwest. And they had classes in high school about them. And, and it was just super fascinating to go out and see for myself what an Indian or an indigenous culture could look like. And, 
um, it just became, yeah, this little snowball, snowball that went on and on and became bigger and bigger. And so travel had part of it and, and to write journals about it was parts of it. And, and then eventually painting uh, came along. And um, I also went to Japan when I was 19, spent three months there again hitchhiking. And I had a friend in Tokyo at the American University. And he said, come on, and I ended up in some postdoctorate um, get-together about Japanese culture. And I remember the, the Scottish professor uh, of how he dissected Japanese culture. It was super fascinating. And I thought, yeah, that's, that's what I want to get into. And um, so, yeah, it all came together and, and went apart and came together again. And here I am now at this point of my life. Know. And I read on your website that you grew up with a lot of nature around you. Did that also influence you, do you think? Um, I think it did. And, and my parents as well were very instrumental because we, every uh, time that we had, we went out, we went to prehistoric sites there in, in the area that I grew up. They were very interested in old cultures or remnants of old cultures. and. Um, I think also um, the way that they saw the, the landscape being the, the ground of an ancient ocean that, that was once there or you know, volcanoes that had arisen 500 million years ago and, and, and they could point it out. It was quite a, quite a beautiful world that I grew up in that way. And tell me some of the indigenous cultures that you've been to visit or lived with and some of their ideologies? Um, yeah, I went to, for, for my master's degree, for instance, I went to Brazil. So I spent a year with, with a tribe in the south of the state of Bahia. It didn't really turn out to be a very traditional uh, living tribe, if I, if I use that word. Uh, it was a community that was very acculturated, very Brazilian in a way. Many of the people lived on farms and spoke Portuguese and had lost a little bit the contact to their old ways. But there were still people doing it the traditional way, hunting, fishing, and um, there were some shamans there, there were some rituals happening. Um, but it was uh, a culture in trauma, in distress, and not really recognized by the surrounding and discriminated against. So that was my challenge in a way. Um, when you do that, you usually work for two universities, the one uh, in this case from Europe and the other one from Brazil, the, 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 the one in the country that you do the study in. And the Brazilians, uh, they were very much on the trajectory of helping people. That was their main focus. So it's called action anthropology. You learn something to put that into action and uplift them in a way. So um, that went on all right. It, it uh, was quite a tedious job to set up lineages, uh, how everyone is connected in these um, communities, about 2,000 people in total, and to fight for the land rights, which fortunately then eventually was put into effect. So that's a good thing because you spend so much time with them. They have expectations. What's this guy doing here the whole time? On the other side, the, the European University, they wanted to know more about religion and rituals and ceremonies. That's what they were interested mm, in. That sounds very interesting. I know, <laughs> I know. In a, in a way, that's, you know, the, the, the cherry on the cake, but it takes forever for that to happen. You know, you need to have uh, someone important die or, uh, you know, some, some important person giving birth to a new child and then the shamans come and then the whole community in that case, they, they almost went from from one reality to another. 
Um, they, they moved across some, some threshold into a different space and it, that other space was full of ancestors floating about and, and hitting you, you know, uh, like a little... So did you have an experience oh. of that? Yeah, um, I, I remember quite a few of these, you know, touches by something that I didn't see and um, it was simply explained as being, yeah, that's ancestor so-and-so, you know, they don't know you yet, they want to get to know you and, oh, okay, so it's fine, you know, stay here, you're part of the ritual now. And um, it's, it's quite, it was quite amazing how, how natural that came about. It wasn't that you needed a shaman to explain that to you, but, but the whole community was part of that. They all understood it, even though yeah. they were living uh, a completely different life to, yeah. to that ritualistic life mm. that they used to live. It's yeah. still, they remember it as they go into those rituals. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was which just is amazing. A it's it's wonderful to hear because there's yeah. so many indigenous cultures around the, the world that have mm. more and more lost that, yeah. that cultural reference, yeah, so it's amazing to hear that I, I don't as they it's do it, it's remembered. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it was because they, at the time already, they were connecting more and more again to, to nature around themselves. And, and that, of course, is full with symbols of the past. And, and, and they were starting to adopt the old traditional indigenous names for themselves. So they stopped calling themselves by the Portuguese name. So there was a little bit of an awakening mm. um, slowly happening at the time. And, um, but I think it's actually not that difficult. You know, it's like with us. We, many of us have been distant from our traditional culture, from our own old culture for a very long time. And, and all actually you have to do is just chill down, start meditate for half an hour and bam, it comes back, you know. It's mm. not that it's completely gone. And, and so it's, it's easy to bring it back. And in this case, yeah, it was facilitated by, by the, the system in a way of, of the shamans who, who helped. And, and the older people, they still spoke the traditional language. They also added in with their gravitas in a way and uh, the young people easily followed. Their, their way. So we can bring that into our daily lives no matter what our culture is just by slowing down. I think it's there you know and, yeah. and we, we don't have to go to the end of the world to find it. It's, um, it's inside, it's, it's in the DNA. Yeah. 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 And what else what else has been similar to that or or where else have you been that that maybe is completely different to that? Um, well I've spent a lot of time with indigenous people pretty much all over the show, um, especially since I started guiding for this um, study tour operator. And um, I went back and back uh, to, to the same place over the years. Which so you is go to quite, quite remote places? Yeah, yes. yeah, that was really my focus. And, and that's what the company wanted, to, to send anthropologists to these places. And um, yeah, so I, I, I went to, to be with, an, with the Aboriginal groups in, in Australia, with um, local people in, in Borneo, and like 20 times Borneo for three weeks. And sometimes we worked with universities um, to, to make contact, or I just, on my own, I just over the years developed some contact to um, teachers and students from universities doing field studies there, doing excavations or whatever. And then over the years, if you, you know, being 15 times to Easter Island and then spending a week there each time, um, there's something that comes together and, and there's a bit of a 
different perspective perhaps in the end. So what can we learn yeah. from these these cultures that you that you've been to that that not that many people have been to because the, they're so remote? Um, this I mean there's so many people that live a lifestyle that is not really ours you know if we call ours perhaps the the Neolithic ones you know of, of big agriculture and and uh, subduing the world for our benefit and grabbing whatever we can grab. Um, there is all that other reality out there as well and there's millions, hundreds of millions. I think in India there's about 150 million people classified as tribal people officially. So if you add that all together we easily come to about half a billion people that don't live our way of life. They're in that buffer zone maybe, they're connected a little bit, but that is a very important buffer zone because we can also go back into that. So it's actually three types of cultures. It's ours, it's theirs, and then there's that thing in between. And the thing in between has developed over hundreds of years. And um, so obviously if I go to say Borneo, I'm not going to be with the most traditional people in Borneo. I'm with people that had contact before and that's a good thing. You know, it's not that everyone should just rock up with very remote people yes. li living very traditionally. We yes. were not supposed to be there really. Yes. So um, yeah, that was probably what I learned most about, how people live in that buffer zone. And then um, also, yeah, um, the, the archaeology, the remnants, you know, of, of uh, the energy that's in sacred sites. Mm -hmm. That was really interesting. And, and to go to Nazca in Peru 20 times and to go to the Haida Indians up in the Pacific Northwest and stay with them. What and, were and they like? What were the... Well, they're cutting down trees, you know, they're, they're, they're loggers. But, oh. um, so, yeah, and they're fishing boats and they take out as much as they can. But, mm. so, it, it is sometimes a little bit difficult for us to reconnect to that because we have that very romantic image about them. Right. But, nevertheless, um, there is something growing there as much as there's something growing in us, you know, an awareness mm. for the environment. And then they, of course, have a different chance than, than we do because they can go back to their traditional ways, which are still there somewhere. You know, they are growing up with totem poles that are withering away, but they still have ancestors, they still have artists, they still have storytelling that's alive. And then on the other side, they get our environmental ecological awareness or new spirituality and, and they can benefit from both. And there's always something new that comes out of it. So um, it's, it's fascinating how these, these little pockets are developing in a way. And maybe one day they are not going to take out all the fish anymore, but just a few fish or they're not, you know, mm. chopping down all the trees. There will be, if, if one... a more sustainable way from yeah. the science of the West. Yeah, yeah. Mm. The, I think it's, it's a very normal process to come to that, that um, eventually you see the forests are depleted, you have to do something about it, you know, you remember how it was when you grew up. So there is, is that thing that will develop, like as it does with us, you know, our awareness yeah. is much bigger now than maybe 20, 30 years ago. Absolutely. Same thing happening there. And, um, in, in general, in a wider, in a wider view. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So in my travels, what I've noticed with um, what we call the first people or 
Um, many uh, San or Khoi people call themselves Bushmen now. They, um, there's a longing to go back to the old ways. Mm. What do you think about allowing that or finding a way for them to fully go back into those old ways? Well, anthropologists really like traditional old ways, right? Yeah. They are not revolutionaries in a way um, that maybe some other sciences are, like sociologists would usually do something to, to stop something that they don't deem worthy in a way. But, you know, we are not the ones to tell people normally, like, stop that tradition or that custom. Um, in some cases, yes, if it inflicts pain on people, you know, or on women especially, or children, then of course um, it should be stopped. But in general, we are invited into these cultures. People are very generous to us. We are there as participant observers. And then um, we also become a little humble with that. And we, we want to help them, in a way, preserve what they have. Um, so I think um, many of us see that as a real big benefit of the of the journey that they can come back that the the land is now stabilized they got the land rights um, and then we we hope for something to develop there and i think uh, what comes from it is purpose because a lot of these indigenous cultures have problems with substance abuse and all these things and um, pretty much every experiment of giving them rights has shown that eventually they profit from more autonomy. Even on a national level, Greenland, Inuit, um, 30, 40 years ago, well, they, they only made headlines because of very high suicide rates and very high alcoholism. But now they have autonomy from uh, Denmark and things are starting to pick up. Yes, it might not always be pretty for us when they hunt a whale, because we also like whales. We don't only like indigenous cultures, so it's yeah. a bit of a conflict for us. But um, they are starting to get away from the vices of the past because they now have more power over their own future. They find the purpose again. It, it can all come back quite easily um, if you allow that. Mm. So. And what I'm hearing you say is that also that some of the ideas and the technologies of the West can actually help that happen. Mm. So it will never be exactly the same because the whole world has moved on. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, we, we are finding out so much more of, of how to safeguard a place. Uh, we, we don't want to have plastic all over the show, so we start having NGOs that take it away from these places and maybe educate people. There's so much happening because we know that we have to work together. It's, it's not just about saving our, our billion people, it's also about saving all the other billions. And um, so I think there's so much exchange going on, it's very good that it happens. And we can only win uh, the challenge together. So the, at the level where people are really concerned about saving not just our billion, where are we looking? Are we looking in governments? Are we looking in universities? Are we looking in scientific institutions or all of those? Yeah, there's, there's always some people who are very much in favor of saving the world, in a way. Right. It's, it's their big thing. And there are others who put a little bit of a break on things. Sometimes it seems to me like the EU, for instance, is, is quite progressive in, in many ways with 
the kind of laws that they are pushing and yes. the kind of support that they are giving even to indigenous cultures in the world, while maybe the public opinion in some places in Europe is rather against it at the moment. So, um, But since the, it's so multi-tiered, mm. there's always one thing that goes a little bit faster than the other, but at, at, as long as the direction is good, as long as the process is moving in that direction, it's... it's uh, and from your experience, Hopefully fortitious. it has been moving forward. Um, yeah, yeah, not fast enough. Yes. Not fast enough. And I think it's, it's also because, um, you know, we are struggling to really follow up with what we want to do. We all have these grand ideas of, of how the world should be like. And, and we think about the climate and all these enormous challenges. And we end up feeling guilty if we don't fulfill our own um, goals and and shameful and it feels so difficult. Um, so it's it's a bit of a of a challenge really for us, and um, it's it's a big problem because you have to motivate these hundreds of millions of people to move along. If we all say no, climate change doesn't happen, you know, then the whole thing collapses again, and then it's quite difficult to restart. And time mm. is running out. Mm. So what I find is really interesting with this whole. Um, anthropology and, and the connection with indigenous people is that there is so much non-neolithic living out there of the past, of parallel to us, even in our societies, many people living in an alternative lifestyle. So if we, if we just give energy and power to, to that other way of looking at the world, I think then we have a chance. I think it's very difficult to, to have a strict uh, lifestyle, you know, of achieving and bigger and faster and all of that, and then stop polluting the planet. But once you see yourself as a non-Neolithic person in a way, that doesn't mean going back to the cave, that just means being alternative, I think then, then we might have a chance, you know, because then it's like, first of all, what's my priority to myself, my health? It's not, it's not the job. It's authenticity instead of, you know, doing fake things. It's, it's love instead of grabbing things all the time. And once we, we put these priorities into place, which are very non-Neolithic, then um, things, things actually have a chance because every time you go into the supermarket you, you, you come in with a different view. You come, uh, if you book your, your holidays, you will think first about what's good for the planet um, because you are the planet. You are the nature. It's, it's not somewhere else happening. You're not going into nature. No, you are nature. So what's good for nature, you know, mm. for yourself? Mm. It's, it's just a different uh, mindset. And what are some of the practical ways that, that you have brought that philosophy into your life? Well, there's um, a lot of, of minor things. You know, I, ca I can't change the planet. Yes, I can start, um, you know, cutting down on my, on my carbon footprint, which I'm trying very much. I can uh, move from a big house to, to a small little flat like this one, which I did for exactly that purpose. I can do all sorts of little things. But I think the main thing is really to try and educate or motivate other people to do something similar. Because I myself, I can't get rid of my, I think it's 6,450 tons of carbon 
footprint that I have. You've measured it. I measured <laughs> it. There are websites that can help you with that. It's, <laughs> so it's a lot, you know. That's, yeah. that's a, a fleet of 6,450 small cars standing out there, you know, a ton each. Do you that's hold a, a lot very of guilt long for that? Well, guilt, but it's uh, more excitement because how do I get rid of that right. huge traffic jam? Oh, I like, you know, that. That, I like that way of thinking. <laughs> yeah, it's incredibly, you know, it can really stimulate and, and make you creative. So, yes, I can now become that fisherman and, and just stand in the water and, you know, very little carbon footprint for the next decades of my life. I can do that, but I'm not going to get rid of the 6,450 tons. Yes. I can only get rid if I tell others or if I show others, if I actually am like an example, if I'm living like an example and tell people who are important in the decision-making processes, well, you know, stay with your car, don't buy a new one or, you know, it's, it's maybe good to, you know, don't take down that hotel if, if I know the hotel owner, you know, just stay with the hotel. It, it has amassed its carbon footprint long time ago. If you now build a new one, well, that's a lot of carbon footprint. So if you start to calculate like that and, and, and do math, then there's a chance to get rid of not only my 6,450, but all the others as well. Um, just to ignite that fire in yeah, people it's, to, um, to get excited about <laughs> shifting not just Yeah, no guilt, no shame. That, that's not the way footprint. to do it. It actually will stall the whole process. Mm, absolutely. That, yeah. and, it, and, and it really does because if you're sitting in that guilt and shame, then that's what you are emanating. Yeah. And how can you change things from there? Yeah. And it's a no-win situation. Absolutely. Really. Yeah. So I love your idea about the excitement of how can I change that for myself mm. and others. And it's, uh, you know, there are discussions, there are conversations to be held with others. You know, we are, we are all together much stronger in finding solutions for this. And it doesn't need to be that we start a political party, but just speak to your neighbor about this and that when you see something is not working the same way and, and say, well, I don't like it this way. You know, yeah. I, I am like this. And um, maybe you would, would like to join me in that. And, and then they have something else to, to, to add. It, it's, yeah. it, it, it's actually amazing of how many people are thinking about this. And, mm. and, and yet it's sometimes difficult to implement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's nice to, to be able to start with just the smallest steps mm. from where you're at. Mm. I also love how you say, speak to your neighbor, because <laughs> Normally we start with our family, like start here and move out. But yeah, our families can sometimes be quite difficult. <laughs> they don't like to hear what you what you have to say because they're family. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, start with your neighbor. I like that. Yeah, that's better. <laughs> yeah. You know, less resistance. <laughs> yes. Yeah. 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 And not from an angry space, obviously. Exactly. Exactly. It's something to to learn. You know, with, mm. with yeah, if if you see someone throw something away with, you know, some plastic on the beach, they they. You know, we, we all, nobody wants to escalate any situation. It's not going to help us, especially mm -hmm. since we have been through political um, experiences. You, you, you know, there's, one's, one's got to be aware of that and not become too, too aggressive in things. But there are ways that, that will actually make you come together with another person and, and uh, you can end up smiling and, and be happy about it. And a piece of plastic is gone at the same time. Yeah. Point of connection. Yeah. So you can actually yeah. use it to connect with people. Mm. Your yeah. ideas and philosophies and as a discussion and, yeah. and a connection. Yeah. Oh. And it's, it's amazing of how positive people will react. 
it's, um, yeah, just try it. <laughs> you speak from experience in the last 23 years of living in Cape Town and how people act and react to you here. Um, the experience of this place, of, of upheaval of the old system and being replaced by something new and, and all the difficulties that come with it and people that had you know, fought in the struggle and that have been, yeah, uh, that feel almost a little deceived by, by what's happening nowadays and, and people that battle it out through the water scarcity and load shedding and, and crime and all of these things make people very aware uh, sometimes traumatized, not so good, but um, it, it uh, is just a very fertile ground, I think, for creativity, for, for finding new ways. And, and that, together with that old dream that South Africa had of people coming together, um, is, is not something that you find in these closed encounters, you know, when, when you go to an event. But um, even now, last, last Saturday, you know how this country came together to celebrate the Springboks after that semi-final win? Yeah, that was one of these big moments, you know, when, when you think, oh, actually, 20, 30 years ago, this would not have happened here, and now it is happening. So... Um, there's hope. There's <laughs> hope, and, and hope is, is showing itself. It's, it's uh, visible. Coming into the reality. diversity is coming together. And the South African coat of arms actually uh, says diverse cultures mm. unite, yeah. which I love because in, in my work with the ancient sacred sites, there are faces in the stone from maybe more than 21,000 years ago that are very diverse from different cultures around the world. Yeah. And so it almost showing up from generations ago um, and it's still part of the the zeitgeist or the, the feeling of Cape Town where all these hmm. diverse cultures are uniting. Yes, I mean, it, just ha it has a history of continuous habitation for, what, 100,000 years or so, you know? If, even if you only look at the archaeological evidence of shell middens, um, there are very few places in the world that, that boast that. It's a sizable population over that course of time and, and then all the other groups that, that came here in between. It's, um, yeah, it's, it's for good reason, I think, the most uh, genetically diverse place um, in the world of, of a population than more than a million people. So, yeah, just, just you know, if you go to the central train station and just look at all these faces, and, and they all come with history, they all have it in themselves, you know, that whole past is still there. Mm. Yeah. And all the gifts from our ancestry as mm. well, and sometimes a lot of pain, but all yeah. we've got to remember all the gifts as well. Yeah. 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 And I'm sure that's very fascinating to you. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's you know, it's, empathy is important, of course, in that, because as you say, it, it is often a lot of pain and trauma and loss and and all the challenges of, of everyday life. So um, sometimes it's, it's a bit much to see that, and especially how, you know, even if you look just at how the city center has in some areas changed over the course of the last few years, and how people are living there. Um, so it's, it's not just um, a romanticized version of, of the past that you can see. You can also see that a lot of people can't fit in. Um, but it, yeah, it is, it comes with these challenges, but on the other side, it's also possible to do something about it. It's not like a, 
a challenge that cannot be addressed because it's too overwhelming. I think the one that we have here in Cape Town can be sorted out in a way. It's a very dynamic place. It has that history of challenge and, and overcoming challenge. It, yeah, If one place can do it in the world, I'm sure Cape Town can. Yeah, and, and to be an example for the rest of the world because mm. there's certain parts of, of history here that has been a good example. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so. I think you, you, we were speaking earlier about one of those examples in our, in our history <coughs> um, with, the, with the battles that have been here. And yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's also that we are in the middle of a rewriting of our story here. That maybe 30 years ago, the story ended with 1652, Jan van Riebeck. And yeah, there was a little bit of Bushman culture before that, that you could see in a museum, but it didn't really matter much or it, it was acknowledged and at the same time it was cast away immediately. It was 1652 and now all the other things are coming up with the Europeans 150 years earlier when Bushmen actually killed Europeans and Europeans as a subsequent um, move declared the whole of southern Africa off limits for in that case the Portuguese you know which delayed colonization for 150 years. It's a big thing. It didn't happen often in the world that an indigenous culture beat Europeans and it was the most important European power at the time and it was the vice king of India that they killed. It had an impact and of course the apartheid government didn't want to hear much about it but it's, it's now being rewritten slowly into the history books and you know so you extend back more and more and more and hopefully um, yeah, even the, the prehistoric times which is always something that we don't really acknowledge easily in our national narrative will also be put in, into um, our way of, of thinking and, and feeling. And into perspective for where yeah. we're at now. Yeah. Yeah. It's very important. And going a little bit more into the <coughs> prehistoric understanding of, of the worlds, we were talking a little bit about my work and uh, my looking into what some cultures called the shining ones. Yeah. So I'd love to ask you a little bit about if you've heard about the shining ones and what's come up in, in the cultures that you've encountered around the world. As if, if you mean foreigners that look very different that come and, and they change the culture, there's lots of those accounts. And um, in, in many ways also in a very gentle way. It's, it's not that, that people felt a trauma from them, um, but, but sometimes it's also generous. Like, okay, you know better than we do and, and we have changed our ways to accommodate your material, maybe spiritual advances that you had made. Um, so there are all sorts of little clues in that, in the storytelling of the world, which of course is fascinating, it's difficult to interpret. Who are they? Maybe it was people who migrated there that had different tools with them. Uh, maybe it was people who brought um, quite striking megalithic monuments with them that didn't exist in the place before. And, and that's where archaeology or um, anthropology comes in and tries to uncover what actually happened there, you know, because often it is a, a form of migration. But yeah, when you look back further than say 5,000, 10,000 years, then of course the, the, the records become weaker and weaker and smaller and smaller and it's, it's more and more difficult to, 
find an explanation for incredible outbursts of energy and creativity. You know, why do 40,000 years ago these, these cave paintings appear in Europe? You know, uh, what, what happened there? And the oldest ones are often the better ones. You know, it's, it's like deep in these cave systems. I went to quite a few of those, fortunately, over the, the last few decades in, in southwest France or in, in northern Spain. And you've got to walk in there for a kilometer and at the end of it, it's total darkness, there's nothing, and, and all you hear is maybe a little, um, you, know, you know, a waterfall in that, in that cave system, in that mountain that you're in. And, and maybe there's a little bit of air movement or whatever. And, and there was this one guy, you know, who painted something way up there. Um, and it's beautiful, it's striking, a bison or something, or a, a rhino. And, and nobody was meant to see that anyways, uh, mm. at least not his people. So what did he do there? You know, it's, there are just so many questions about it. And, and did he do it for the gods, for the spirits? What happened there, you know? So the more and more you look into that, the more and more fascinating it actually gets. And, and there are all these question marks. And the only access that we can have to that is actually our brain, because our brain is the same of all the other human beings, uh, m most of the other human beings, the Neanderthal may be a different case. Mm. But they but have built these, these sacred sites and these paintings that we see today. Yes, yeah. And, and so if we understand ourselves better, then maybe there's a way to access um, these, these paintings and the, and the reason why they, why they happened. They were us who did it, in a way. Unless we believe in people from outer space. But, um, so if you go back to at least to Homo sapiens to the beginning, um, there, there is a way to access that knowledge, in a way. But it has to come with intuition, um, and yeah, maybe also to find out more about their material culture, how did they go about doing it, and, and did they take any substances, for instance, um, were there rituals that brought them into a different mind frame, then we might have to do that as well. We might have to dance ourselves into trance um, to understand what was going on there. Uh, we can't just sit in our little ivory tower in a, in a university building, you know, air-conditioned, and, and try to imagine that it becomes more difficult. Mm. Um, so th there are all these different access points, and it's super fascinating to go back in time and, and try to uncover Yeah, and that. actually being at those sites yeah. is, is, has a very different feel to it. Mm. It's a very different texture in your body. And as we were speaking in the, in the beginning, is to kind of even go into that space where the energy is, holds the, the energies of those people from thousands mm. of years ago and actually just rest and sit in it and, yeah. and stop for a bit. Mm. And that's where the access points come in. Yeah. And to, you know, to go deeper, you could take a, a plant substance if, if you feel that they did. And, and that's also where part of your work comes in is, is to see if, if those people, what is the evidence around, mm. around that? Yeah. Have you found that, that many cultures around the world have taken plant medicine? Um, it, it depends really. There are all sorts of different shamanic traditions and the classical shamanism is more about the drumming and, and not substances. And, and then in the Americas it's a, it's a bit stronger. In Africa there's some, even in Europe there was a bit of that um, in, in old 
Greek traditions um, before it was then overlayered by, by alcohol, by wine, really, by the Dionysian cults. But um, yeah, so that, that is certainly part of it. But it might also be that these voices from the past, they, they could also just come to us, you know, as much as someone who is a, a medium can, can access something. So it's, it's not that far away from who we are if we let that happen. We, we might not even have to take these substances or go into the trance or, or beat the drum for an extended period of time. We, we might, some of us, might have different accesses. Maybe it would be very interesting to put a few mediums into the cave system in, in Lascoa or Altamira and, and see what they come up with. Mm, someone um, who's sensitive to the yeah, energies. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Yes, wouldn't that be interesting? <laughs> <laughs> what can we look at from the past that can support us in our modern living? I think it's it's mostly that that revelation of of what the world was like before it became what it is now with us in the last few thousand years in some places or here in in Cape Town in the last five hundred years, um, and and it's it's accessible in a way when we go into wilderness, you know, when we just go up the mountain and into a place where it's not made into concrete pathways or cableway, but it's there, you know, we got such an access to wilderness here and, and that's not nature, wilderness is a different category of it. Wild, and the wild part yeah, of nature, yeah. not so touched by Not human. tamed and not categorized, but, but you know, where things go wild and um, it might even be a bit dangerous because there might be an animal that, that could kill us. and to just go into that space and, and to feel lost in that space and to feel a little bit of fear in that place. You know, when you are there at night and, and you have your little campfire and you hear some sound from behind and you don't know what it is, you know, to go back into that state that was the same state for hundreds of thousands of years for our ancestors, you know, to, oh, what was that? Was it a lion? Is it going to eat me? What, what is that? So we still have these fears in us. Just you know, I, f I find that fascinating to go back into wilderness and feel fear again. Of course, it's not the same because I might be sitting in my car while I hear that sound or yeah. I might be safe, but um, we still hear these sounds that our ancestors um, had around themselves and, and that brought them into, you know, made them creative. They, they learned how to make fire because they were afraid, you know, all these incredible things that, that happened over the course of time. And it's there with the land. So we, we, you know, to keep the land, to preserve the land, the wilderness, amazing. And yeah, to also even, you know, it is just something, I don't know, maybe I was brought up with that through my early experiences, or maybe it is just something that's, that's in me. I'm, I'm not a medium. I can't channel. Um, ancestors easily, past lives and things like that. I just go to someone else to do it for me. Um, but, but my thing is maybe to see even built up landscapes in a way that they, what, what they might have looked like before anyone had moved in and built a house there. So, and it's so easy to do that here. I, I remember during lockdown, you know, when the, when the mountain was closed. Um, to eventually go up and uh, I just needed to be on the mountain. It was still close, but I just climbed some fences and got in there and and all the movement of our modern 
you know, of, of joggers and, and dog walkers, nothing against them, you know, I'm, I'm also happily one of them sometimes, but all that had withered away within a few weeks, it was all gone and to be up there and it felt like, okay, this was it, this was civilization, you know, that was these 500 years since some Vasco da Gama or Bartolomeo Diaz crossed that cape, it's just gone, you know, and, and this is the place again, it, it feels like it and, um, yeah, I find that that's a fascinating little exercise to do sometimes, to just take it all away and, and imagine what it was like and, and to step into that other world. It's all about stepping into other worlds all the time, you know, it's South Africa, the old South Africa, the new South Africa, the our lives. We travel to get into the other world, we come back into our world, we're constantly moving about between realities and um, to also look into that reality of wilderness and, and the prehistoric way of, of living as an inspiration for us today. It's, uh, it's as big a reality as ours and to, to make big changes now for what is remaining of our civilization, it's, it's very important to get the clues from, from the other side, from the other reality. Mm, it's almost a feeling of being in those spaces that are less touched by human activity, it's the feeling that it brings. Mm. It's the feeling that it, it feels so peaceful and you feel like you're part of that nature, which we are always, but when we're living such busy lives, we forget. Yeah. So it's almost like going into those wild places just mm. brings us, it's like Africa does that to you. Yeah. You just become part of the landscape. You feel so grounded yeah, in yeah. in Africa because it, it they are such wide open untouched spaces mm. that it just brings that feeling of like oh I'm landing yeah, yeah. and then and to go back into your life mm. and and remember that feeling and bring it with you yeah and you can enhance the experience by by reading books about it um, or you you don't have to you know because you can just go to a cave painting or rock outside here in the Cedarbergs and you fall asleep, have a little little siesta there next to it and, and to look at the dreams that you then have, you know, it, there might be something happening and, and that all adds up to the experience as much as um, books do and, and experiences of other people. It's a whole wealth of information out there. Mm. And, and that's a bit strange maybe, being an anthropologist and having gone through all the academia and having read all these books and studied and still studying, <coughs> I acknowledge more and more that it's in us, you know, the whole library of mankind and womankind is, is in us. Mm. I think that's a really strong thing to remember is that it is inside of us. Mm. Stop looking outside all the time. It is good to have all that information to trigger the memories. But to remember it is inside us. It's in our DNA. It's from our ancestors. It's in the, the energy of the spaces, in those wild places, in those sacred spaces that our ancestors have spent time in. Yeah. yeah. And to share that, you know, there are lots of travelers who are out on the same trajectory who want to, to find inspiration by that and yeah, to, to look around and, and um, share that and share thoughts and come together. You know, it's, uh, you've done these journeys, you know, with your groups 
up in Botswana in the Kalahari and, and with the local people and um, isn't it a, a wonderful experience? I mean, it can't get much better than that. It is the most amazing experience. Yeah. 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 Mm. What can individuals do about the melting ice caps? What can I do apart from bring awareness to it? What decisions can we make that, that would make a difference? Very, very complex. I've thought a lot about it. Because, yes, one thing is stop cruise ships to Antarctica, but that's not the point. It's, you know, when you add up the numbers of the carbon footprint of passengers on cruise ships, it is not the reason why that glacier is gone. It's the glacier is gone because something else happens in the world. And, yeah, very, very likely human-made climate change is, is the reason for that. And so, yeah, when, when we look at our lifestyles, you know, we are flying around like crazy. We are um, using the resources of, of, this, of this planet um, and we've we got to do something about it. And, and we have to um, stop doing that. And I think that's why it, it can't really happen through little minute changes in our individual behavior. But it, it has to be that as many of us actually have a glimpse of the other reality, of what there is at stake, what wilderness can teach us. Once, once we do that, or if we do it over and over again, in some cases it might need 30 years for us to come to that awareness that that is actually the real reality and this is a little fake bubble on top of it, the sugar icing, you know, that's quite toxic in a way, but, but beautifully colorful <clears throat> and we are addicted to it and attracted by it. But it should not take over our experience and it should not take over the lives of who come after us. You know, we, we should, well, but I don't want to be speaking too much about the shoulds um, because I, I really think it, it is um, one of the most fascinating journeys that we can do. It is, it's not just about geographical travel in this lifetime. <clears throat> it is about, um, yeah, these challenges and, and coming together and looking at a, an obstacle from different angles and trying to push that out of the way and, and go on and and survive, you know, we want to survive. Find solutions and thrive. Yeah. yeah. Mm. Together. Yes, yeah, all of us, you know, down to the little snail. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah. Berndt, thank you so much. That was absolutely fascinating, all of, all of the experiences that you've shared with us. Mm. Thank you, thank you very much for the opportunity, it was lovely. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review and rate the NixiePod show. It helps to get this information out to more of our soul tribe. Thank you for listening. <laughs>